Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Here at Drilling Deep, we talk about oil and we talk about diesel. And you can't get diesel on its own. It's not like it's in the ground as diesel. No, you have to drill for oil instead to make diesel. And that's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. We're joined this week by our guest of the week. Her name is Mick Yarive of Omnitracks, and she'll be here to talk about how technology can help combat double brokering, which everybody is in agreement right now, is completely out of control. Let's talk about diesel, though. The benchmark diesel price used for most fuel surcharges is the Department of Energy price that's formally published by the Energy Information Administration. It comes out on Monday, though this week it came out on Tuesday because of the holiday. It was down this week for the 16th time in the last 17 weeks, and it's now down about $1.95 per gallon from the high level of $5.81 that was set last June 20th. So we're coming up on one year from that. The latest price is $3.85.5. The market seems amazingly calm about the future. Beside the outright decline in the price of diesel, diesel has declined or diesel has weakened in the last trading days relative to Brent crude oil, the world benchmark. There are no signs of a tight market in the physical spreads. These Those spreads are the ones that measure, for example, how much a pipeline or barge quantity of diesel in a market such as the Gulf Coast is trading for against the CME commodity exchange benchmark. So it would trade at, let's say, CME minus four cents, that kind of thing. And that four cent number can go up and down. It can go up and down a lot. Those spreads, though, have been largely settled for the last five, last several weeks. And yet, I can't but help but look at some of the data in the market and be concerned about what consumers might be facing later in the year. Let's start off by saying that if we get this recession that always seems just over the horizon, yet never seems to arrive, then all bets are off. The price of diesel is not likely to rise in the face of declining economic activity. That's a given. One of the things that has me concerned, though, from the perspective of buyers, is something that I think we talked about last week, but we'll say it again. First of all, I am recording this before the release of this week's Energy Information Administration data on inventories for the week that ended last Friday. But it doesn't matter. It isn't likely to show some vast change. I still can go back one week and talk about these really shocking inventory numbers. I won't pound you with too much data, but I can tell you that for the week that ended May 19th, inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel, that's the kind of stuff that goes into trucks, were 94.7 million barrels in the U.S. And all you need to know is that in the history of data on US ULSD inventories, doesn't go back that long because it's a fairly new product, that number, that 94.7, has only been lower a handful of times. And, you know, it's okay to have low numbers if your consumption is low. But again, not pounding you with data, despite the weak trucking market, figures on consumption are actually not all that weak. The result is that we're, dro that, that we're dropping on the measurement that, excuse me, the result is that we're declining on the measurement of days cover. Days cover is a statistic that takes inventories, divides it by consumption, the estimate on consumption, and then you get a figure that shows how much consumption could be covered by inventories alone. How many days? It's a nice digestible figure, easy to understand. And I can tell you that at 26.7 days, the most recent number as I record this, it's getting down to some of the lowest levels we've ever seen. That figure, by the way, is for all distillates that are not jet fuel, 
but it's mostly diesel, probably about 90% diesel. Then we have the supply-demand imbalance for crude. The monthly International Energy Agency report for May came out a couple of weeks ago, um, and it increased its forecast for global consumption, global demand this year, by 200,000 barrels a day, which for one month is a, is a big increase. It had already been up like around 1.8 million barrels a day on the year. Now it, they tacked on another 200,000 barrels a day. The IEA estimates that by the end of the year, world consumption will be 103.1 million barrels a day. That would be the highest ever. The IEA also estimated that the OPEC Plus group needs to produce about 45.2 million barrels a day of crude in the fourth quarter to balance supply and demand. OPEC Plus is, is a group that includes OPEC and a group of non-OPEC member exporters led by Russia. Here's the problem. OPEC plus isn't even close to that. In the first two months of this year, they were around 42 million barrels per day, according to S&P Global Commodity Insights. We don't have more recent data on the entire OPEC plus group, but let's just say it can't be up that much more. And if they were around 42 back then, and they need to get up to 45 million barrels a day by the fourth quarter, we've got a long way to go. The U.S. oil patch is not going to come to the rescue. Its output has been stuck between about 12.2 to 12.3 million barrels a day for months now. Now, there are some signs that the big cuts that OPEC uh, Plus talked about might not come to fruition. Those cuts were to go into effect in May. All signs point to Russia in particular not cutting back their output. But if you've got a gap between supply and demand approaching 3 million barrels a day in the fourth quarter of this year, the question is, where is that oil going to come from? There aren't a lot of good answers to that question. I don't forecast because I'm not smart enough to do so. But when I look at the end of the year, and when I look at diesel inventories now, it's hard to be bearish. But enjoy these prices. I'm not going to say for now, because maybe they will stick around for a while. But outside of recession, I am not sure what the case is for these prices to stick around and not go higher. Time to move on here on Drilling Deep, as we always do. Mick Yariv is Vice President and General Manager at Omnitrax, which is part of Solera. That's why you see Solera on her shirt there. Uh, Omnitrax is one of the biggest suppliers of ELDs and an array of software solutions that are designed to help drive compliance, safety, and a wide range of other issues at fleets. She's here though, specifically to talk about how technology, te- how technology can combat double brokering, which pretty much everybody agrees is absolutely out of control and at a level that they've never seen before. So, uh, Mick, first of all, thank you. Uh, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start by defining double brokering? And I ask that because I know when I've asked people others, in, you know, at, at other times, everybody seems to have a slightly different definition. Not all double brokering is necessarily illegal or bad. How do you see it? Uh, absolutely. I think there's a... There's a very small window, in my opinion, of double double brokering that's okay, right? And that is the case where the owner of the freight knows that it's being double brokered. There's chain of custody across the entire thing. Everybody knows the players that are involved. I think that is not at all what we're talking about these days. I, I don't think that is our problem, that there's too much of that type of double brokering happening. Um, the way I think about double brokering, and I think I think most people agree I hope most people agree with it, is that uh, there's there's the case where somebody has double brokered a load, the the, the final carrier moves that freight, um, and everything goes fine, 
right? The, the, the freak out where it, it needed to get to. Um, the carriers got paid. Um, it, it's not a practice that we should be, you know, participating in. But, but in that case, uh, the harm is a lot smaller. Uh, then I think the more nefarious kind where, uh, you have, uh, double brokering where somebody is, is brokering the load to another carrier. The carrier moves the freight. Um, and then that carrier is ultimately never paid. Um, or, uh, you know, cases where, uh, the load gets lost. Nobody knows where it is. It's stolen. It's hijacked, et cetera. Um, so in the world of double brokering, I also think that we have this huge problem. Um, that goes under a different name, which is dispatching services, right? In, in this case, um, you know, it's it's not the same thing you could say as as double brokering by definition, um, but I, I see kind of two sides to that as well, um, where there's not full transparency of information about who's moving the load, and in that case, that's where the similarities are. Um, in their best light, I think that dispatching services. Uh, are replacing uh, kind of the relationship that you had where maybe you had a, a guy out on the road and his wife was back home doing the back office and she was looking for freight for him and handling the invoices and, and all of that. Um, and, and a dispatching service can, can do those things for a carrier. And I think uh, it's looking to replace that level of service. Um, but in the worst case, uh, there's often fraud. There's of, often um, no transparency in terms of who the underlying carrier actually is. Um, and in some cases that I've seen, there's actually coercion happening uh, where, you know, the underlying carrier really can't get out from under uh, that dispatching service. So I think we have we have two issues. I think they're they're closely related, uh, but it's all about lack of transparency about who's actually moving freight. This is interesting. This is the first time I think I've heard dispatching services uh, identified as a possible cause for this. I was at the Transportation Intermediaries Association uh, meeting uh, for you know about three days about a month ago in Orlando, and, and double brokering was pretty much all they spoke about. It was nonstop. I don't know, maybe you were there too, um, but uh, I don't think I heard dispatchers as a as a cause or a potential cause come up even once. Is is it just that they're Many of them are small. They are one person or two people shop, and they just they just don't have the kind of sophisticated tools to to see what's going on. Yeah, that that could be it. That it is in the kind of smaller smaller segment of the the market. I mean, from from my point of view, and I work directly with uh, you know small and medium fleets. Um, to me, this you know, if you think about the 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 landscape of trucking, right, ninety seven percent of the capacity out there is coming from you know, these small fleets that have under, under 10 trucks. So I think, I think there, it, it's a huge problem just by volume. Um, but probably not being talked about, uh, you know, at the same level as double brokering. But, but in my mind, uh, if there's not transparency in the transaction, um, we, we have the same problem, right? We, we don't know who the carrier is that we're working with, who, who's coming to pick the freight up. And so I think we have to, you know, uh, figure out a solution on, on both of those. Well, and that's where you come in. I, I, I guess another thing that surprised me about the boom and double brokering, boom always sounds positive. So both the rise, um, the rise in double brokering is that with so many tools dedicated to transparency, like how could this go on? And I guess maybe the reason, and you would probably argue that the tools just aren't there, aren't out there enough, not that they don't have the capabilities, but they're not as widely, uh, widely used. So what are some of the solutions that that Omnitrax and Solera are bringing to the table? 
Well, let me let me start on the, on the first part of your, of your statement there, which is you know around do we just not have the right tools? Um, I think if you draw, and I, I think about this drawing comparison to the financial industries, right? They spend billions of dollars on security and fraud preve- prevention every year, right? But it does not stop the unmitigated growth of fraud. Uh, in, in the industry, right? You, you have people who their entire life savings are being wiped out, um, because they gave somebody their information unknowingly. And, and no matter how much money, uh, the financial industry is spending on this, uh, it, it is still, um, human error at the end of the day. And so I, I think there's some element of, I don't think we can technology our way completely out of this. I think it's got to be a combination of, uh, technology and information. Um, but then also awareness. So I'm, I'm thankful that you're, you're doing this, uh, this show today, but uh, awareness of the issue and, uh, you know, and how these things happen. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We talk about it a lot in the, uh, in the transportation sector. Uh, but, you know, for the guy who, you know, is, is working at the dock at the warehouse, right? And, and the carrier who shows up doesn't match, uh, you know, the bills that he has. Like, does he, does he recognize that this is, you know, a situation that, that could potentially have a bad outcome? So I, I think it's, it's not, not going to be technology that, that saves us in this case. It's got to be a combination. Yeah. One of the messages that came through again at the, I'm going back to TIA was call the driver, always reach out to the driver who's supposedly buying it. And if, and if somebody says, well, you can't reach them, they're here, they're there, they're out of touch, whatever, that should be a gigantic red flag. So I think what you're saying is, that you know you can have all the tools you want, but there's still got to be some human involvement here. Abs- absolutely. So I've seen you know cases where some of our customers have just have just asked you know can you please take a picture of the door of the truck that shows up at your dock, right? And and if that MC number is not matching all the way through, right? Then then we have a problem. So um, it, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, it's going to be a combination of solutions, and and I think it took us you know, a long time to get to this, it's not going to be something that we fix tomorrow either, despite how badly we all want it. Um, you know, I think all of the technology, if you think about technology that has been built in the last 10 years, how much how much investment has come into our space in the industry over the last 10 years? I mean, it was unprecedented. Uh, when I started in, the, in this industry, uh, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, nobody was investing in, in, you know, transportation companies and technology for transportation. And so, if you think about all of the technology that we have brought to bear and we still have this problem, right? It, it just shows you the, you know, the, the sophistication and uh, the, the opportunists that are out there looking to, you know, make a buck, uh, you know, at the expense of, of, you know, good carriers, good shippers. All right. Well, let's talk about technology and let's talk about one of the solutions that are out there. I mean, we've, we've made it clear. You're not going to, you, no, nobody is going to come up with a single technology solution that's going to replace just kind of good you know, kind of good nose work. I mean, you know, if, the, if your bunny needs a good nose to, to know when it's dealing with some possible double brokering. But what are some of the technology solutions uh, that should give a tip off to somebody who's about to become a victim of this? Yeah, I, I think there's some really interesting technology that is in the works uh, uh, around this that, that I think will help. Um, I think the work that's being done to aggregate data from multiple sources to create like a digital fingerprint of, of a company or create risk scores around these uh, companies, I think can be helpful. Um, I also think that there's a lot of nuance uh, in implementing those sorts of solutions. And we have to be really careful um, as we implement them because they're only as good as, as the inputs. 
But I think that's a really um, interesting way to approach it because this, in, in a lot of cases, the data is out there, right? But it is coming from multiple sources. And so to the extent that you can aggregate that data. And so, for example, we uh, as, as an ELD provider, right, we are an input into um, into that digital fingerprint, right? So we know where the truck is. We know who's logged into that ELD, et cetera. Um, I think if you take all of these data points, uh, you can you could build something that uh, would help identify uh, the person that that's on the other side of that transaction. Uh, can you can you offer us like a specific like something that is that is in the Omni tracks, whether it's their ELD or some kind of transportation management system? To talk. Let, let's get real down into the weeds and talk about something that, that your company does that you think is very valuable. Well, let me let me uh, shift to one of um, my favorite businesses at, at Omnitrax and Solera, uh, and that is Selectus. So uh, if you've never heard of Selectus, it is a, a, a TMS and a load board uh, for the expedite market. And uh, in it, it, we have over the last 20 years built an alliance of carriers who work together uh, to, you know, manage when they need excess capacity or when they need excess freight. Um, and I think what we have seen there is it, you know, kind of goes back to, um, the idea that this will be, um, a human solution that is technology enabled. So, so our customers work together, uh, building relationships with one another such that, uh, when they need excess capacity or excess freight, uh, they they know who the other you know partner is in the network, so you know to that extent bringing together kind of a vetted group of of carriers uh, to work together, uh, we see less of that problem in that space. I think when you open up to um, kind of to the public domain, right? It's kind of like in in IT security. Uh, there's what's called the um, an attack surface, right? How many points of entry? Uh, you know, does your organization have that could be attacked, right? When you post loads out on a hundred, you know, different public load boards, you're effectively increasing your attack surface, um, and, and making that available to, you know, anyone who's out there looking, looking to, you know, commit fraud. So I, in our case, it's a really interesting example of how carriers can work together, um, to avoid a lot of these pitfalls around, you know, not knowing the other parties. Uh, involved and and being more open to uh, you know double brokering. What what are some of the things that the industry can do about it? Um, I mean that actually does sound like an industry solution because you're you're talking about companies that are working together. But again, going back to the TIA, I hate to keep referring to that, but it just, just like I said, I th- I felt like it was the double brokering meeting. Um, what are some of the things the broader industry has a responsibility to do? Maybe on a trade association level or even a governmental level. You know, I think every company uh, needs to make sure that the agents for that company, so the employees of that company, um, ultimately have the right incentives, right? And so if you are someone at a broker uh, looking to uh, cover a load uh, and uh, you're just looking for the cheapest rate that you can find, you can find the cheapest rate. It doesn't mean your freight's going to get there, right? So I, I think there has to be an understanding that uh, as an industry, we're looking for we're looking for quality solutions, um, and sometimes uh, that means that you're going to pay more for that solution, but you have you know better uh, better guarantee that your freight is going to get there in time. Um, and so again, it's one of these human things that you know incentives drive behavior, and uh, if if somebody is incentivized to just find the cheapest truck that they can find, um, you know ultimately that's what they'll do. 
I, I do think that there's a there's an industry challenge in that um, in that it is very difficult for new entrants uh, to come into this space um, because their their authority is new. And with the heightened awareness of double brokering, you know, people really are are weary of working with new authorities. Um, and and in some ways, that's good, right? They're saying, hey, until someone's proven, right, we want to make sure that this is a, you know, a solid carrier. Um, you know, we're not going to work with them. On the other hand, you've got really hardworking people who have an entrepreneurial spirit and want to get into the trucking business. Um, and it's very difficult for, for them to get that first load, that second load. And so, you know, we talk as an industry about wanting to encourage new entrants into our space, right? Driver shortage and everybody's going to, uh, you know, age out of this. But yet it's very difficult, um, you know, for new entrants to, to uh, you know, come into this space. Maybe the solution then would be to, to get yourself established by leasing on to somebody so you're still theoretically independent. I know that would set off a, a huge debate about whether somebody leased on really is independent, uh, but they're at least theoretically independent. Then maybe can, they can establish themselves. So if they've got to go, when they finally do want to go out completely on their own, maybe they've got a track record that enables them to, to be booked without concern. Just, just, just a thought. What do you think? A absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, what I've seen, um, you know, we talked uh, about uh, the dispatching services uh, and and I think people are trying to shortcut that path of, hey, I'm going to start by leasing on with somebody and then I'll move out on my own. Um, and what I've seen with some of these dispatching services is they will um, effectively coerce somebody into uh, staying with them by not allowing them to get their own authority while they're working with the dispatching service. Uh, such that they can never claw out from under them and, and go off on their own. I mean, so it, this, this would be the carrier that does this, not the dispatch yeah, service. Correct, right. correct. So, yeah, it's it, there, there's there's ways to there's ways to enter the market for sure, and and we would love to see more carriers, uh, you know, enter enter the market uh, and be successful. Uh, it's it's just a, a hard hill to climb right now with all of the uh, issues around double brokering. Yeah, I, I do want to come back to the dispatching for a second because I always kind of found that inter interesting. I know that it's a, you know, it's a fairly low barrier way of getting into the business if you want to be on your own. I mean, you don't need a truck; you just need a phone and a computer. Um, have their, I'd say their standards drop, but have their, um, have their, this has their discipline dropped in this weaker market, and maybe they're they're, they're just kind of a leaky valve in this whole supply chain. Uh, I. I think I think they are problematic. <laughs> um, I, I think the problem is uh, lack of lack of transparency, right? So when when one of these dispatching services are are bidding on freight and they're bidding as themselves, um, and then ultimately they're passing that along to another carrier under a different different MC, uh, different insurance, right? It's it's again, if there's not transparency in the entire transaction, we have a problem. Um, so you know, I know there's been a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, going to, uh, you know, going to Congress about dispatching services and, and, you know, asking, you know, for, for some assistance there from a regulations perspective. Um, but I, I definitely, uh, I definitely feel that if you have part of the industry that's working, that's not transparent, uh, it's going to lead to many of our problems. Now at dispatch, I'm going to ask a real sort of trucking 101 question here. Um, a dispatcher, they would not have authority to be able to bid on a load, would they? Or would they just be bidding on behalf of somebody? 
So, so it's a, it's a good distinction. So when we talk about dispatchers, we are referring, in this case, I'm talking about dispatching services versus a dispatcher working, uh, you know, in the operations team of a. Sure, I understand that. I mean, you know, okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so they are bidding as, you know, what we are seeing is they are bidding as themselves. Um, and under their authority, and then they're not transparent that th- that that they are actually bidding on behalf of somebody else um, and using their authority. And that could be because their authority is older, more established, right? They they have uh, clients who, who have new authorities. Um, uh, for for whatever the the motivation for it, it it definitely causes problems for the industry. I guess I learned something new here today. I would not have thought a dispatching service would have had their own authority. Uh, the, uh, many of the ones that we see do. Okay. Um, how much of this is just caused by a weak market and people are looking to make a buck uh, no matter any way they can in a strong market? The money out there is so good that this kind of uh, scam is harder to pull off? You know, I think that w- what I have seen most recently that I think is is new is just uh, how this all ties in uh, with the proliferation on social media. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the last time that we had, uh, you know, a dip in the market, uh, I don't know, maybe five, five years ago, whenever that was, uh, I, I don't think that we had all of these, uh, social channels so active around transportation. So if you go on Facebook or TikTok or, you know, any of these, uh, social media channels, uh, there, there are people out there who are, you know, looking for advice and there are people out there giving advice and not always, uh, you know, the, the best uh, cast of characters uh, are responding to that. So I, I think it just adds another vector to this um, where, and, and again, this is probably talking more to the, the small side of the market, right? In, in your larger carriers, I don't think this is the same problem. Um, but, but I do see given how much time we spend, you know, working with the, the SMB market in, in trucking, um, you know, I do see that so much of this is taking place over social media, these these scams happening, people giving poor advice. And um, I, I think it has brought us to this tipping point uh, that we are now where it, it just seems to be running rampant. I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around the idea of taking a truckload of whatever that's worth thousands and tens of thousands of dollars and transacting it via social media. It's just, it's, it just sounds crazy to me, but you're saying it's going but- I mean, it happens every day. You look out there and you see posts for people, you know, I mean, essentially Facebook has become a load board, right? Where you have people who, who have freight or who have, you know, capacity and they, they, they're looking for their shopping rates and, um, and it's, it's, it's being transacted there. So, uh, maybe that's part of the problem. I've seen it. I guess I just didn't think anybody would act on it, but obviously that <laughs> I learned something else today. So anyway, we want to thank. Mick Yorif, she is Vice President and General Manager at Omnitrax, which is a Solera company. Mick, thanks for joining us here today on Drilling Deep to talk about double brokering. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightwaves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. And of course, you can find us on Freightwaves TV. I've been your host, John Kingston. And please join us again 